And some of the excitement I think that you're seeing coming out of Penn West, uh, for example, in the marketing is that you're seeing that people get really, not everybody, and I want to be clear about that, but um, increasingly people get swept up in that excitement about building something new. I mean, how often do you get to build a new university in the 21st century? Not very often. And so when you, and, and these are professional, they're, we are in public institutions with gen, tend to serve low and middle income families. They're mission-driven folks. And all of a sudden you're saying to mission-driven folks, you have an opportunity to reimagine yourselves. A lot of people get pretty turned on by that. And frankly, those who don't or who really are turned off by that, they tend to leave, you know, which is sad to see members of the family go. But it's important to be for us to be clear about where we're going and, and for people to make the decisions that are important to them. And so increasingly you're left with folks who get swept up in the energy. But it's um it's a long haul and there are bumps along the way. Uh, but to Cindy's point, it is super exciting. Hello everyone, and welcome to our season four inaugural episode. This is Melissa Morse-Olson, your host. We launched this podcast right at the beginning of the pandemic. And over the course of our first three seasons, I've had conversations with more than 100 leaders, individuals who are at the center of the change currently underway. Through these conversations, we've come to understand just how much the pandemic is changing higher education. A common theme across these conversations is an acknowledgement that the pandemic is upending just about everything, including how we live and work and our long-standing beliefs about the value of a four-year college education. To our signature question about what is on your radar right now, what we heard time and again is an understanding that we cannot go backwards. The experience of COVID-19 has challenged so many of higher ed's traditions and ways of doing things. It is clear that optionality and flexibility are increasingly integral to the new normal for every sector of the economy and particularly for higher education. From our conversations, we learned that a focus on the student experience, making it flexible, seamless and relevant will be ever more critical in the years ahead. I'm very excited about our season four episodes. We will dig deeper to better understand all of the ways in which higher education is being transformed. We'll speak with those who are experimenting and innovating in new and exciting ways, all in an effort to remain relevant and to make the needed changes that will endure and ensure financial viability. Individuals such as our guests for this very first episode of season four. The Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education recently completed the first two phases of a system redesign undertaken in 2017 in response to an array of overwhelming challenges that confront public higher education nationally and are acutely concentrated in the state of Pennsylvania. Change of any kind is difficult, but imagine a change redesign process integrating six institutions into two regional powerhouse universities while also stabilizing university finances, enhancing governance and leadership, freezing student tuition, and securing additional state funding, to name just a few of the early outcomes. This is the process led by Chancellor Dr. Daniel Greenstein collaboration with the PASHI Board of Governors Chair, Dr. Cynthia Shapira. Dan and Cindy speak candidly with me about what it takes to pull off a change effort of this magnitude, including the importance of having an effective governance and leadership team, data-driven decision-making, and a commitment to putting students first. We will include links for Dan and Cindy's impressive bios in the show notes. Dan and Cindy, I am delighted to welcome you to the Ingenious You community today. Thank you so much. We're delighted to be here. Good to be here. Thank you. So we have thousands of listeners from around the globe, many of whom may not know much about the Pennsylvania State Higher Ed System, uh, which is referred to as PASHI. Could you give us a high-level overview about the system, your mission, uh, who you serve. Thank you for that question. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, we love talking about our system and, and our mission and our students. So uh, it's a great opening question. 
Uh, Pennsylvania's state system of higher education, the acronym being PASHI, uh, was formed in uh, 1983, 1984. Uh, I think the enabling legislation passed and it pulled together um, 14 uh, four-year institutions, which had begun as normal schools. There was a, a movement in the 80s uh, that started to pull together um, schools like this in, in a number of states uh, into systems for the purpose of um, not only uh, sort of, uh, you know, greater branding and, and um, uh, possibly economies of scale. And the system was born. And it was born with a mission of providing uh, the highest quality education for your education at the lowest affordable price, essentially, you know, was was the mission um, originally. That pretty much remains the core of our mission, although we've evolved um, today um, to recognize that there are state workforce needs that, that must be met. Um, we do not have enough um, Pennsylvanians uh, with four-year college education to meet workforce needs. Um, and so we we have an additional uh, or enhanced mission uh, to meet that workforce need um, and to uh, admit, uh, retain, and graduate um, uh, students from uh, underrepresented minority communities uh, in addition to that to close attainment gaps, et cetera. But affordability, high quality education, uh, workforce development uh, remain our core. That's a great segue for my next question, uh, Cindy. Uh, and that is uh, in 2017, uh, Pashi launched a historic, unprecedented, and I might say highly ambitious system redesign. Um, would love to have you both unpack the process and help us understand uh, how the how the the design process actually unfolded to begin with. Um, maybe tell us about the pain points, the pressing problems you were trying to address with sure. the, the redesign, which I think is probably related to what you were just saying and giving the, the context. This one I will start with only because I was there before Dan was. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I can uh, talk a little more from firsthand experience uh, uh, about how it began. Um, but I, I was appointed um, by the governor and uh, our board of governors, uh, our state uh, Senate confirmed, confirmed by our state Senate in, in 2016. I think I joined in time for the April quarterly meeting and at the July quarterly meeting, I became uh, chair. So, you know, kind of got thrown into that. Um, and, you know, as as chair, I was taking the job even more seriously than I was when I when I first joined as a as a governor. Um, and uh, you know it was it was clear that we had um, uh, a major financial sustainability issue in that in two thousand and ten, um, the state budget, uh, the state allocation um, had been enormously slashed, uh, close to thirty percent. Um, we'd never recovered from that, and we were also experiencing uh, an enrollment decline, um, which was attributable to many things. Um, yes, there was a, a demographic decline, but it was partly on us too because we were we were actually only using the lever of tuition uh, to compensate for the the loss in in state money, and and so we were pricing ourselves. Um, out of business and certainly out of business in terms of the mission, you know, that, that we had to serve. Um, and so we determined um, that we were no longer going to spend um, every year going to the uh, General Assembly, wringing our hands, saying, poor us, we need more money. And we were actually going to try to tackle the issue head on. But we didn't know what the issue was exactly. We didn't know how deep it went. Uh, and we frankly didn't have any real ideas about how to tackle it, except to, you know, keep cutting to the bone um, uh, at the university level, um, which after a while, you know, just, just doesn't work anymore. And all it does is perpetuate a cycle of fewer programs, 
you know, more frustration for students, uh, worse product, then they don't come, you know, then you don't get the tuition even. So it was just a really bad cycle. Um, and we hired um, a, a national nonprofit uh, consulting firm to do a top to bottom study. And we determined, you know, we were going to be honest and transparent about the results and about tackling it. Um, and the report came back and it was actually largely saying it's actually more expensive to close schools. Don't close schools wholesale. Don't shut them down. Um, and you have a fundamental problem with your governance structure because it's so political. So a lot of that was helpful. Um, we, we, though needed we needed that uh, we knew that we needed to do more so the next thing we determined was that we were going to go through a system redesign and we were going to establish as our priorities um, student success university success by which we meant financial sustainability um, and um, much better governance uh, and leadership and and that we did you know take from from this consultant report that we got uh, and we embarked, you know, on this three-pronged redesign campaign and had the opportunity at the same time uh, to do a search for a new chancellor. And we were very transparent about our issues and about what we needed. We needed a change agent. We needed somebody to come in who, uh, who could uh, understand what our mission was, um, what our immediate it's beyond pain points. It was, you know, near death points, I, I would mm -hmm. say, were, um, and how we could translate our three priorities, you know, into um, a, uh, a system that was sustainable and fulfilling our mission. Um, and and we, we hired Dan. Um, and, you know, Dan, um, I think you should sort of uh, take it from here and talk about uh, then some of the specifics that, that we undertook. I was given six months to come up with a, actually fewer. Um, I started in September. I was told by the January board, October, November, December, January, four months to come up with strategy <laughs> or a strategy framework. But you were working with me, so it was all- Yeah, it was a hustle. Um, anyway, um, to and it was really, I mean, you, you know, you sort of boil it down, it, there's two component parts. I think, you know, one of them was um, uh, financial stabilization. I, I think, you know, the further we dug into the challenges that we were facing, the, the more we realized how serious they were. Um, and that the more that financial stabilization really began to take priority is kind of short term priority. And then the second was the longer term visions that Cindy's already touched on, which is really, you know, how do you retool a system so that it can not just survive, but thrive into the 21st century when, you know, when there when, when the demands for higher education are growing and and in order for higher education to meet those demands, especially state owned universities, it has to open the aperture and serve uh, wholly different uh, kinds of students um, and and offer wholly different kinds of programs and it has been used to so that second order of business is the longer obviously more protracted one is the one we're sort of fully embarked on now i think was fundamentally the more important so you know that the initials sort or of framework for system redesign had those two component parts. Um, that became increasingly sequenced as the financial exigency really began to come front and center. But um, but uh, that and I guess the third component, sort of which I'll sort of touch on, which sort of evolved over time, was a recognition that in our, in our political context it was important, it was impossible to close university for political reasons, and it was impossible to gain state funding because of the Republican majority in the General Assembly until we had satisfied um, the the majority that we had gotten our arms around some of our financial challenges. There was a genuine interest, I think, in, in supporting the state system at a higher level, but not until you know we demonstrated that we could manage money effectively. And that was really directed at the chancellor and the board, not so much the universities. Mm -hmm. um, so there was this third component, which was a grand bargain. Like we know we need investment from the state, but we have to sort of sequence the work so that we prioritize financial stabilization. Uh, so that we can get the investment that we need to sort of take off in that second component, which is really about performance improvement. Yeah. So the political context in Pennsylvania is a really important thing. Absolutely that Factors into this, which is a little unique, I I think, um, in in your state. So, and Dan, you knew what you were getting into. I you were hired, <laughs> or I sort maybe of not. Did. I sort <laughs> of. Did. Yeah, I mean, to go big picture, you kind of understand big picture, you know, um, the, the detail level, the visceral level, you kind of only understand it when you're right in the middle of it. I think, Cindy, you'd probably say the same. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. 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 
So, so when you embark on change of any kind, um, you both know there are always pressure points. If you find the right pressure points and you can lever them, you'll have leverage them. You can have greater impact. And so, what were those? What were those pressure points uh, for your system redesign for the first phase? The the main pressure point was that uh, because it was um, a Republican uh, dominated. Um, Senate and House of Representatives um, in in the state, um, we are our, our our biggest pressure point was uh, to demonstrate that we could get our financial house in order, um, and and but we had to do it anyway. It's not like you know we did it because of political pressure. We, we had to do it, or we, we weren't going to survive. Um, so we were aligned. You know, we were very. I mean, I was appointed by a a Democrat. Uh, Democrat uh, governor, uh, you know, whom I supported uh, as a candidate, um, uh, but I was in total agreement. And, and I think that's one of the key things, the key ways we, quote, leveraged was that um, we, for the most part, not completely, but as much as possible, tried to rise above the politics and the you know, the, 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 the affiliations, et cetera, and say, you know, wh what's our North star here? What do we all care about? And we all cared about the students and the system and workforce need, workforce needs and economic development, you know, and, and Pennsylvania solving this public higher education system um, issue. And, and we, we really kept that, you know, uh, topmost in mind, because at the same time we were working with a predominantly Republican uh, General Assembly, we were also working with a, a Democrat governor um, who, uh, you know, was a, a, you know, a great supporter um, of uh, our unions, which we are too. Um, but as you know, you know, that can create political uh, contention as well. Um, but, but really just constantly reminding everybody and reminding ourselves what we really cared about and what we really had to do here uh, was a tremendous leverage um, against uh, that particular pain point. But I would say that was the that was the first one. And until we could demonstrate uh, that we could be fiscally responsible, and we had to do that, by the way, through um, a, a new uh, collective bargaining agreement cycle, mm -hmm. Um, the, the first one that happened when I immediately uh, became chair was literally a, a month later, uh, we took a strike by the faculty union. Um, that was just, it was disastrous for so many reasons, not just, um, you know, the terrible feelings that it created and the, um, the mistrust, uh, you know, that both sides had to overcome. Um, uh, but the obvious, uh, you know, um, shutting down the, the, the universities for a number of days and, uh, it, it was just a terrible thing. And, um, Dan and I had to face, you know, four years later, uh, another collective bargaining round and that could have been, uh, a pain point. Um, but we approached it from the point of view of uh, uh, what are we all interested in? You know, what do we all want to try to achieve? And then how do we, you know, work out a contract that meets the needs of both sides while keeping in mind, uh, you know, the greater good. Um, and we were able to, because of that contract, because of um, accountability that we uh, instilled from the board level, um, and the sustainability policies that the board passed, uh, that the universities that we charged the chancellor to make sure the universities complied with them, et cetera, we, we managed to mitigate the financial situation, gain the trust of the Republicans, um, work with the Democrats, uh, you know, and, and the governor um, on issues to make sure um, that our union people were taken care of, because those are the people that teach and provide all of our services. We do care about them. Um, and and I, I think those were the ways we, we managed to mitigate that major, uh, that major pain point. 
let me ask you to dig a little deeper in terms of the system redesign itself, which <clears throat> involved merging uh, a number of campuses into two. Is that, that's correct. Yes. Um, and I can only imagine, um, if you think about change in a single campus entity, um, magnifying those issues. So I'm thinking about the curriculum, how you uh, approach um, uh, a merger uh, with uh, separate curricula uh, on the campuses, facilities. Um, I know athletics is big uh, for for you all. So um, any of those that you can you can speak to in terms of how you how you approached that. Let me back up a little bit. So I think of the, the system redesign generally as operating within a handful of parameters. So we've talked about a couple. One of them is the fact that it was a collective, you know, 85% of our employees are um, part of collective bargaining units um, uh, and have deep ties, you know, and, and as a consequence, life of the system and change in the system is, is quickly politicized. Um, the second is that the, the, there was a constraint imposed by the parameter of, of the politics of Pennsylvania that any further state investment was going to require getting our arms around our financial controls. Um, there was a, a, a third, which is important, and Cindy's mentioned it, we, we cannot close a campus. It's politically impractical. It's just not an acceptable uh, outcome. So, you know, um, and... and um, uh, uh, so, and then there was a fourth actually, which is worth pointing out, which is that our, um, our, there was never really any understanding of what the system actually meant, what it did that when you, when you interviewed people about, you know, what is this is when I first got here and you know, talked to people about, it, there was no real understanding, which created an opportunity to sort of fill in that narrative. Um, so, so, you know, as you begin to sort of approach the financial stabilization, that's where integration is kind of, uh, first came on the radar screen. Uh, when you begin to approach financial sustainability, you know, we're basically one bank account. So we're, we're basically required to come up with a strategy where we can maintain viable instructional activity at all 14 of our sites. That was like the bottom line. And we had to do that in a financially sustaining way because of the political dynamic. We had latitude in how we understood the system because nobody, there was no agreement about what the system was. And so, you know, we began to sort of build this concept well before integration about systemness. You know, we operate together and we can leverage our collective sort of power in different ways. And so integration emerges from many of those things, right? So what was happening in our, and Cindy, Cindy's already alluded to this, as our enrollments declined in our more rural institutions and they failed to sort of adjust their costs to, to reflect their declining enrollments, you know, they began to basically operate in the red. Um, and, you know, by 2019, we probably had four or five institutions which were heading quite quickly to insolvency, which... I would define as having exhausted their reserves and are not now operating with balanced budget, which means they're now borrowing, actually taking money from other universities in order simply to stay afloat. Um, and because we're all one corporate structure, that was damaging to everybody, right? So Cindy's already mentioned there's this vicious spiral. So in order, so so the board in, implemented a requirement in 2019 that universities do like every American family and spend within their means. And that, of course, resulted in, in universities, in particular in the rural areas that were most challenged, very significantly having to curtail their academic program breadth, which then threatened their further enrollment decline. So that vicious cycle is a challenge. And then, you know, but, but within a context of ours, we could leverage the power of the system to avoid that sort of cycle, which is so appalling and happens mostly in the private sector where there aren't any other options. You know, by ensuring that universities working together could actually have smaller enrollments, smaller academic program profiles, but avail their students of much broader academic programming. And that's where this idea really emerged about the system, this, this working together on the, collaboratively on the academic program preceded integration. And of course, integration was driven by the fact that our sort of early forays into putting in place just management tools we didn't have, we realized how very severe our financial situation and how widespread our financial situation was and how urgent it was um, and how little time we had to, to address it. And so, um, you know, we're just going through this sort of sustainability sort of implementing implementing our sustainability policy and recognizing that many of our schools as they became sustainable could only support 30 or 40 academic programs majors minors etc that that was going to kill them and so integration grew directly out of that hey by working together a university that standing on its own might have 30 or 40 programs can now have 110 and that's not just important to the students who want choice it's important to the communities who rely on those universities to recruit their next generation of leadership Right. They don't just want one flavor of teacher. They want the whole 
sweet. They don't just want one flavor of healthcare worker, they want all range of specialties. And so the only way that we could continue in that role was to, to basically look at various kinds of integration. So that's where that, that sort of grew out of. Um, the details of integration, I mean, we can go in any direction. It's uh, certainly not a super fun process, but uh, complex in, in both planning and implementation. But uh, for those out there who are thinking about doing it, it's definitely, definitely doable. It's doable, and and the uh, and at the same time, we were we were able to and and by the way, um, part of this process was an incredible amount of listening um, and inviting comment. You know, on our website, and we published literally every single comment that came in. You know, no matter how um, distasteful the comment may have been, uh, conducted. Uh, twice as many public uh, uh, hearings uh, that we had initially agreed to, et cetera. But we listened to all of it and we actually made lots of changes in the integration plan based on uh, what we had listened to. But a primary theme that uh, came up over and over again uh, was the idea of losing um, uh, teams and, and team identity. And, uh, uh, you know, is my school gonna be able to play anymore? Do I have to play under you know, an integrated uh, university brand new team. Um, that was really important. And so we, we did petition the NCAA uh, to permit schools that were integrated to nevertheless uh, keep division one, uh, you know, teams uh, on their on their campuses. Um, and that was granted. And, and that was very helpful um, in uh, making in, in making this sort of more more palatable. The and the interest the only interesting thing I would add is just something, you know, sort of observational. I, I live in Western Pennsylvania, and um, uh, several months ago started seeing bill billboards um, about Penn West and you know happy looking students and and all of this and then and then commercials um, about Penn West and I would I would say that definitely. The three integrated universities here uh, in the western part of the state that are now the Penn Penn West uh, University um, have really sort of leaned into this new branding, and it's it's really kind of exciting. Um, so, you know, they have their own identities uh, to to a certain extent, but they're actually excited about um, what they do have to offer as a brand new. You know, you when you're brand new, it's a clean slate, and, mm -hmm. and you can form your own branding. And uh, there's just so much possibility, and they're really leaning into it. Mm. Well, you're touching on one of the, I think, more challenging aspects of a change of this magnitude, and that has to do with the blending of cultures, the blending of institutional cultures, which you've you've addressed. Uh, through athletics in an interesting way by letting the the campus campuses hold on to their um, their individual team and yet in other ways you're really asking uh, asking for a blending integration of the cultures um, yeah I mean integration started there's a number of design principles so one of them was identity was important um, because of the history of these places and um, brand recognition and so you know managing around identity and athletics mostly div two we have a couple of div one teams uh, wrestling at Lockhaven, for example, but um, uh, athletics is part, a part of that foundation relations, that name, you know, so it's Penn West, but it's Penn West Clarion, Penn West Edinburgh, Penn West uh, California, um, a good example of, you know, that sort of uh, resonance with, uh, with, with identity. But we also, another design principle was that, you know, A plus B plus C didn't equal A and B and C, that we were actually creating something new, Cindy's already said that. And that that and and as a consequence, we really urged our our schools. I mean, the the the, the, pr the planning process was very very complex. It involved like thirty working groups, each of them sort of mimicking a function or looking at a function, a particular function of a university, and sort of thinking about okay, what's the end state and how do we get there? And and as they went towards what's the end state, we were urging real stretch goals like don't just don't just replicate. Use this as an opportunity to design the university of the future. It would be such a mistake simply to replicate what we've already got, because what we've already got, while it has many strengths, also has many weaknesses. So 
use this as an opportunity to, to respond to those weaknesses. And of course, the other huge opportunity that comes from integration is that you're not just reorganizing a single department or a couple of departments. You know, when you when you do that, you inevitably run into the constraints that evolve when if you're in, if you're if you're reorganizing enrollment management, you will eventually bump into the academic enterprise or you will eventually bump into the financial services operation or the financial aid operation or to the marketing department. And when you bump into another function, you typically, unless that function agrees to join you in your reorganization, you've kind of gone as far as you can go. When you're throwing all the cards up in the air. So we really urged our folks do two things. Use this as an opportunity to build the university of the future and not replicate what we have. Understand what that university looks like. And then understand the intersections between all of these working groups that are looking at specific functions and be very articulate about, okay, we're making this change, for example, to go after more online students in the undergraduate space, or to go after more non-degree um, uh, programs amongst adults. And, and, you know, let's understand what the implications are for other functions of the university so that we can build it into our, into our thinking. And so, um, and some of the excitement I think that you're seeing coming out of Penn West uh, for example, in the marketing, is that you're seeing that people get really, not everybody, and I want to be clear about that, but um, increasingly people get swept up in that excitement about building something new. I mean, how often do you get to build a new university in the 21st century? Not very often. And so when you, and, and, and these are professional, they're, these are in public institutions with tend to serve low and middle income families. They're mission-driven folks. And all of a sudden you're saying to mission-driven folks, you have an opportunity to reimagine yourselves. A lot of people get pretty turned on by that. And frankly, those who don't or who really are turned off by that, they tend to leave, you know, which is sad to see members of the family go. But it's important to be for us to be clear about where we're going and, and for people to make the decisions that are important to them. And so increasingly you're left with folks who get swept up in the energy. But it's um it's a long haul and there are bumps along the way. Uh, but to Cindy's point, it is super exciting. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a free fall. Colleges are closing and merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Bay Path University Doctorate in Educational Leadership with a concentration in higher ed leadership and organizational studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then we designed program in response. The EDD program prepares students to become self-aware, effective, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support from peers and from our expert faculty. And through the dissertation and practice, our students learn how to plan and implement a change process to address a real organizational problem. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu edd. It's obvious that the two of you have a really good relationship. You have a really good rapport established. And as you know, sometimes with change like this, uh, another one of the pain points is a breakdown between the, the board, the leadership, um, you name it. So can you, can you speak to how the board and the chancellor and the individual campus leadership teams work together and how did you support each other? How did you um, address uh, any uh, bumps there? And and did your relationships change or evolve uh, during the process? You know, so when you start with a board that's politically appointed and that automatically has um, four electeds mm -hmm. uh, on the board, um, one each from the Democrat and Republican caucus in the Senate and, and then from, from the House, uh, so you're already starting off, uh, you know, with political contention. And then essentially, um, the, 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 there's also a seat uh, for the Secretary of Education and for the governor uh, or, or their designees. Um, and, and the rest of the seats are essentially um, uh, the prerogative of the governor to appoint. But there's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot of horse trading. There's a lot of, uh, 
you, you know, I can't put this guy on this board in the state, so I'll put him on that board, et cetera. Um, uh, there's a lot of, you know, deal making, et cetera. So, you know, and I'm just, I'm just being honest that that's how any, uh, political system board, uh, that's appointed gets appointed that that's the process. It is what it is. Um, but you can make of that what you want, right? You can say, "Ugh, you know, I've got these Democrats or I've got these Republicans, you know, if you're on the other side, yeah, there's nothing I can do with them and I'm going to, I'm going to minimize them or I'm going to ignore them or uh, I'm whatever. Um, and, uh, our board never did that. It really actually didn't, I'm not taking credit for it because it, it did not seem to be doing that even when I joined. Uh, everybody talked to each other. People had social relationships. Um, it was collegial. It was always collegial. Um, uh, but I, I, I think that we've really tried, first of all, at that board level, um, no matter how you came onto the board, uh, that you understood that once you were on the board, you had a hugely important responsibility. And it went beyond um, either what your uh, initial foundation was for getting appointed or um, really to the extent, it's not complete, um, but to the extent possible, your your political affiliation. Um, and, and again, it goes back to that idea uh, of uh, there's a shared, there's a North Star there that we all agree with. Um, and and that was that was very important. And um, Dan um, made a point uh, to really get to know uh, 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 all of the board members as well. Um, and we both made a point of really listening to everybody. And we discovered, you know, uh, there's almost nobody that doesn't have something interesting and important to say. Um, and and that that's a really big thing. Uh, we, I think, are really able to take from everybody um, uh, certain nuggets of wisdom uh, or different perspectives or ways of looking at things. Um, and that that really sets a tone. Um, and what Dan really did, and he can speak about this more, though, was Dan made a huge effort to reach out to the university leadership um, uh, as colleagues who were all in on this. So, right, redesign wasn't coming from the board and it, redesign wasn't coming from the chancellor and redesign wasn't coming from you know, the Republican majority or from the governor, uh, redesign is coming from all of us and, and presidents, you know, this point about it's one corporate account. Well, that means you're all responsible for each other. Um, and you're all accountable to each other. Um, and the accountability flows both ways, uh, between the board and the universities, et cetera. And, and, Dan, though, in a in, in a very pragmatic way, by creating um, an executive leadership uh, group that is composed uh, of the presidents, started to use the presidents as his really his his closest advisors, mm -hmm. and as each other's closest advisors, and that really changed things too. Um, and and you know, Dan Dan won't talk about what an incredible, uh, innovative and effective thing that was to do um because he's he's somewhat modest he's not really all that modest but at least a little bit modest but i need to say that and then he can he can fill in the details but there are and then we saw there are other um leadership groups that need to be heard and represented you know we always had by state statute three student uh, governors on the board of governors um, uh, uh, but nobody on the faculty uh, was represented on the board. And that was another big change we made. Um, we have um, the person, the faculty member is elected by the faculty um, and does everything but vote. And that person who sits on the, the uh, board of governors from the faculty is, is a full participant um, in every discussion, except for one that that might be personnel related and and uh, you know um, uh, would would have to be uh, recused from, but uh, 
that was a big change we made. So we is it, and it wasn't just to reach out to our faculty union or or something. I mean, we really we we really understood we needed that. We believe in shared governance, and we need that perspective, and we need it at the board of governors level, too. Um, so those are some of the things that 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 we've done. Dan, anything you would add? That? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think at, at from the boards for, at the board level, I mean, you know, Cindy's being too modest too. I mean, she she um, she invites discussion. I mean, it's active engagement. It's not just you know, sitting there waiting for X to talk. I mean, um, but it, you know, oh, I it, call on people, right? <laughs> right, and 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 that's important, you know, and 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 um, and willingness to sort of um, to reach out to to members at really the smallest issue. Um, I think that's important. The executive committee, there's a the chair and the vice chairs, I guess there's five at the executive committee. You know, the, the executive committee is scheduled to meet every week. We don't meet every week, but we, we do when we need to. And, you know, that's, um, we do board briefings uh, often. So we do everything we can, I think, under Cindy's guidance to make sure that all board members, especially in a public meeting, are prepared to to engage directly in the information and to engage at a level that's appropriate to the board strategy and policy as opposed to you know in in the detail of that really should be left to the executive officers at the university of the system um and so we go way out of our way to use i mean the sunshine laws in pennsylvania work in our favor in this regard that the, the board is able to meet privately if you like um as long as it's not being deliberative and and we use those opportunities to basically ensure that the board members fully understand the issues that are in front of them. No one of the board members who had to vote on integration, every single one of them was deeply well-versed, not only in the benefits of potential, the potential for integration, but also the potential risks of integration, as well as the alternatives to integration. I mean, mm -hmm. I think in the year that we did integration planning, and the, you know the 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 it, we the board probably met a dozen times, maybe more. Um, uh, in you know, and so and that's true with all of the major issues. That so, um, I think Cindy's insistence on data driven decision making is absolutely critical. It does not eliminate the the sort of ideological dimension of discussion, but it, it it minimizes it. Right? You can't. It's no longer good enough to say I believe that blah blah. It's really important to say the data demonstrate that, right? And so it just fundamentally changes the nature of the conversation when that is the the expectation. So um, so I think there's a lot to be said in terms of, uh, you know, board management. And then I think the last bit that I would add is, you know, C Cindy, um, it works in ways, if, if, if it was realized, I think, how much, how many hours Cindy puts into her chairpersonship, uh, nobody would ever take a, an appointment. I mean, you know, she is, um, she's it's starting with, we meet, we meet, we meet monthly with the governor, right? And yeah. before COVID, Cindy would drive from Pittsburgh to Harrisburg. It's like three and a quarter hours. Um, uh, she participates at, at critical legislative briefings. Uh, she is constantly, we're constantly on the phone on issues from the sublime to the ridiculous. You know, it's, um, it's a good thing. It's not. A, it's 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 an important thing. Cindy's a thought partner in sort of uh, strategy uh, development um, as well as implementation and tactics. The, the executive committee we meet as much to talk about tactics because it's a very political public higher education is a very political enterprise. You know, we meet as much to talk about tactics of you know pursuing various different and and obviously to gain advice and get input on on various different uh, strategic issues. But um, and the members of the, the vice chairs, I think, in some ways, are selected sort of to, to make sure that we have a good network so that when we talk about tactics, it's not necessarily from just one particular perspective. So um, a lot of that, that requires time and attention. It's time and attention of the chair, time and attention of the chancellor, but more the chancellor staff and, and staffing the board. Um, but, you know, a high Cindy's created a high-performing board. And, and that is, uh, um, you know, and we would not have gotten here without that. It just would have, would have stalled in our tracks. And, well, and the and if I could, Melissa, just just to to add to that, um, we uh, uh, once we determined what these three priorities were uh, a number of years ago, five years ago, we we changed our board structure. We went from I don't know maybe six or more I can't even remember how many administratively oriented committees. You know, we had a board committee on HR. We had a board mm -hmm. committee on finance. We had. We went from that um, to mirroring our priorities. So we established uh, a board committee on student success, a board committee on university success, and a board committee on governance and leadership. 
and and then we threw an audit because you know you got to have your risk risk management and audit that has to be separate but we really tried to mirror uh we went to a consent agenda formula um and we switched our meeting so so first of all by switching the committees we're getting ourselves out of administration and compliance where the board had been focused you know prior to to you know uh, when i when i came on board but we also uh, Dan was instrumental, uh, you know, in 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 helping me do this too. Our board time now is mostly spent in education and understanding issues, and the the actual sunshine board meeting itself, all of those are brought up and 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 debated, et cetera. Um, but there's no more time spent on um, uh, anything administrative or operational in nature. Mm -hmm. If, if we have to, you know, have a board action on it, it's a consent agenda. Um, but we use the the pre-scheduled quarterly board meetings, I think, primarily for for edu education and understanding um, of issues. So that, as Dan says, when we get to the actual, you know, board uh, meeting itself in, in, in the sunshine, um, uh, we can deal substantively with what's on the table. And the public well, can see that. Yeah, no, it, it, I, I'm really struck by the extent to which you've used this process to deepen learning, growth, and development uh, for your board, but for the rest of the, um, you know, the rest of the, the community and the entities that make up the community. It's really striking. I think you need to go on the road and, and okay. share, partic particularly in terms of the board governance, because what you're talking about, Cindy, is, is really the change that has uh, come about in the way the board functions, uh, it's gonna serve you well for years to come. I, I'll tell you one, whether, one other anecdote, I'll share, I joke about this with my team because it's, you know, it's been four years. And so, you know, we're, as we're going into this next phase, which is really focusing on growth, I guess, um, you know, there's a lot of what have we learned and how do we, you know, and what do we do in the next phase? Cause we kind of, we kind of know what we did in the last phase, but what we did in the last phase is probably not appropriate you know, we have to evolve ourselves. And, and so there's a lot of reflection going on. Um, one of the interesting aspects of that reflection is to realize how long it took just to basically put a bunch of tools in place without which we could not have done anything like we've tried to accomplish. So actually we've talked about one of them, which is the whole kind of, not just restructuring, but the culture of the board, the, the way the board acts, et cetera, which then opens up a whole different opportunity to sort of how you engage leadership, executive leadership, myself and the presidents. You know, if the board's operating at a policy and strategy level, that means that the presidents and the chancellor are kind of, you know, partners in, recommending strategies to the board and then implementing them um, so that how do they then get governed? You know, we were, I was talking with my colleague, uh, Kate Akers the other day who runs our advanced data analytics unit, the boards, she said to me, it was interesting. I'm interviewing her because I'm trying to write some of this stuff up. And she said to me, what really allowed us to build, we have probably the best data analytics unit in the country. I'm not kidding. We have the best, the broadest, we have the launch, we have a longitudinal student, student longitudinal data system. We integrate workforce data, census data, education data from up. Uh, state and national sources, there's a whole lot of cool stuff that we're now able to do. The, um, and we have data standards and data governance across the entire system so that everybody uses data in the same way so that we're super, anyway. She said when she got here, it was kind of a mess. And what enabled her, what gave her the leverage to pull it all together was the board's insistence that decision-making be data-driven that there be real accountability for universities and system officers in terms of identifying and then performing against specific measurable goals that drive our priorities and student and university success. All of a sudden, it was now absolutely critical. So, and then we're you know putting in place HR system, et cetera. So putting in place the tools that enabled us to drive transformation took years. It and 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 uh, you know it's one of the key you know and you, uh, uh, I don't think I've ever said this to you Cindy but you know you get here and you think ah oh, you're gonna do all sorts of really cool stuff in higher education and you realize you're down in the weeds and basically installing drains and toilets so that you can get to the more interesting things because unless you put in that fundamental infrastructure those accountabilities budget processes that make sense you know data infrastructure that everybody can use a board that is functioning as a high performing team unless you have those things in place. None of these things can happen except as little kind of pilot projects, which don't really make a difference. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, that's it was it's, it's, it's a lesson learned and, and it takes a long time, more time than I expected, I have to tell you.
Yeah. Well, and so many good milestones um, that you have already achieved here, including the great news you received recently of uh, the passing of your largest budget increase ever. So that's, you know, uh, well, that's I, that, I can't imagine the significance of that for you all. It, it yes, just on the face of it, the significance. Um, um, but for us, it was, um, uh, the the testament to the fact that we had kept our part of the grand bargain. Um, that that we had done what we needed to do. We had restored bipartisan faith bipartisan um and uh you know we, we were working in partnership now with the general assembly and the governor it's 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 really so it, it has a lot of meaning beyond you know the the actual great numbers which are really super important uh you know the budget money itself yeah in, indeed and that's obvious from what you've talked about in terms of the political context in which you are you're situated so in the just a couple of minutes we have left. I, I want to return to this question of lessons learned, which Dan, you you highlighted. Um, you really answered my question about what does it take to pull something like this off? Um, and so are there any pitfalls? You know, as you now look back to this first phase of things you wish you had known and and here you know we all learn a lot from our mistakes right is there anything you would never do again yeah there, there are things i can think of that you know sort of tactically maybe done a little bit differently um uh you know i think the um we had i, I guess i think of it cindy as there were waves there were waves of progressively more challenging issues and each one, you know, in retrospect, I feel like each one was preparing us for the next one, which we didn't see coming. So like the first one was when, when I got here and, and certainly when Cindy got here, you know, Cheney University, our, our, uh, the nation's oldest HBCU was in a really difficult, terrible state. I mean, financially, student outcomes were terrible, et cetera, and had a new leader who had been a member of the board who was, you know, uh, trying, a, a implementing a very, very um, aggressive and in many ways, very creative uh, strategy. But obviously, you know, it was pretty hard work. Uh, and and getting you know Cheney's accreditation was under threat and and um, you know I think getting to a place where Cheney was stabilized and you know the president could have a, a good shot at implementing his strategy, you know that was tough. Um, it was nowhere near as tough as um, uh, you know the next year's work, which really focused a lot on getting the board the authority it needed to do integration and take other other steps that were necessary to to transform ourselves which was nowhere near as tough as the integration work itself. So I felt like every phase was like hardening and <laughs> helping and learning, you know, um, uh, so that we could sort of go, go tackle the next one. Uh, uh, and you didn't see that coming, but it's a, a lot of learning, I guess, learning by doing and being open to that. And I don't know, I guess the one thing, if I had done it differently, if I'd seen that sequence coming, I guess I would have been a calmer person. I would have... <laughs> <laughs> We've seen the professional development opportunity in each of these challenges, as opposed to, you know, the kind of crisis management that goes along. With and, and I, and I think for me, a major lesson, um, you know, as a, I, I guess as a, as a board leader is uh, even understanding what the questions are. Um, there's so much I didn't know that I didn't know. I mean, I thought I sort of had a handle on the financial situation because uh, before Dan came on board, um, we, we had a, a, a system where we would go through uh, a series of, I don't know, like 30 risk factors um, uh, for each university, um, you know, uh, green, yellow, and red to indicate the, the level of risk. Um, and, and, and by and large, they were all, you know, pretty frightening. Um, and, and then, but no solutions, you know, it was just, we knew this problem was here, but we didn't know, uh, we, we, we didn't know, we didn't have any kind of approach, but the, the truth is we didn't know nearly how bad it was. We, we thought we knew, you know, based on that, you know, but we didn't. So I think that's a major pitfall. And I, I, I frankly don't even know how to 
how to overcome that. And interestingly, for the pilot project for my dissertation, I interviewed somebody uh, who had been a you know a president and and a board chair before president, uh, um, and you know made the same comment. Didn't even know what she didn't know. And when she found out, you know, it was devastating. So I think that's a pitfall. And unfortunately for your listeners, I don't have a solution to it, except to say, if you think you've done some digging, keep digging because you haven't. Well, and I would actually add on that is again to my conversation with Kate just yesterday was that the board's insistence on data and data driven, not just reflection, we're not just going to admire the problem. We're going to have data driven solutions. Show us what the problem is what the uh, strategies are for addressing the problem and what you anticipate the outcomes of those strategies are going to be and then surface the work, show us your assumption. All of that forces a much greater rigor around the, the, the development of the data and reporting. And as a consequence, that's what got us deeper into the problem. It was the board's insistence on, you know, rigorous data-driven decision-making and accountability, which drove the industry, drove internally, you know, towards a much more, a deeper and more disturbing, I have to say, picture of our financial situation. And, yeah. and that and that did come from the fact that we were so woefully uh, uh, undereducated about what the real issue was. That, that drove us to say, this is the only way we're making decisions going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great, great principle to um, to wrap the lessons learned on. Uh, and I would just I would just observe that that you obviously were also very open minded. You didn't come into this with preconceived ideas or notions, but you were really willing to look at the data uh, and and learn from the data, which is also, I think, um, obvious in how you approach this. And, so, and willing to compromise, too, by the way, because remember, Melissa, yeah. you know, we had to compromise too. We didn't get everything we wanted. Yeah. Um, we we took a lot of flack for things that we basically were sort of forced to do. So it's it's not all you know, la la land. Um, <laughs> but 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 you have to you had to be willing to do that as well. Yeah. So I just my signature question. We have a signature question we ask everybody. So I just need to get your thoughts on this before we close. Um, as you look to the future for higher education, what's the thing you are most either concerned about or excited about? The, the concern and the and the excitement are the same, you know. In, yeah, that's in, what I was going to say. Yeah. In order to be what we need to be for the 21st century, we have to under we have to reskill ourselves. We have to undertake mm -hmm. professional development, if you like, at scale, right? I mean, we are really good at what we do. What we do is we educate traditional students, you know, coming from a certain background. Uh, what we need to do is open the aperture, uh, and 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 that which means we have to meet a whole bunch of different students where they are, not where we think they ought to be, or not where the students who we our core market is. Um, and that is like you can't just go to a, a faculty member or a staff member and say, "Hey, could you be more culturally competent?" It doesn't work. You can't just go to someone and say, "You know, hey, actually, adult students are completely different than." You know the the athlete who's in your class. Um, could you could you engage differently? You know you've got to provide those supports and 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 so you, that challenge. You know and and the race goes to the swift, right? Everybody's having the same issues. The race goes to the swift. So how can you agilely and effectively support your your professional staff, your faculty, and your your student facing staff? You know to to really um, to develop the skills that they need to succeed and and that we need to succeed in the twenty first century. That's a fascinating problem. The, the, the frightening thing is also the big opportunity, uh, which is the great disruption in higher education, um, uh, the, the difficulty and the opportunity um, of getting people who traditionally have had no opportunity for higher education successfully in and out of the system to, to meet workforce needs and to, uh, and to uh, ensure their own social and economic mobility. So it, it, it's both sides of, of, of the same coin. But even beyond what Dan would say is, you know, the, the, the first challenge from just from my point of view is, um, you, you know, uh, board leaders have to understand this. Board leaders, I think, of every kind of institution and every sector of higher education need to understand um, where, where we are now um, and um, uh, how the system is being disrupted 
how um, uh, it is uh, not meeting a value proposition for so many Americans. They can't be stuck by in, in saying that you know the old ways of doing things in our traditional lovely, you know, residential four-year proscribed uh, curriculum where um, faculty and administrators decide what you students want instead of it being you know student student-centered. That mindset has to change. Once that mindset changes, I think it will start to flow. But but for me, it 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 starts at the top, and it's tough, you know, to to convince people who, out of the goodness, you know, of, of, of wanting to serve, sit on boards, but just they, they don't get it, and why would they? It, it isn't their business. But that's that's where the change has to start. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of An Ingenious You. This is Melissa Morris-Olson, your host. We are very excited about our season four conversations. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. I invite you to visit our website for the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at baypath.edu slash chelip, C-H-E-L-I-P, where you will find information about our monthly free Leading Edge Thinking and Higher Education webinars, as well as our just-launched YouTube channel, where you'll find full video interviews with our most highly rated conversations from previous seasons. And while on this site, you can subscribe so you don't miss out on the release of new content and upcoming webinars. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening.